0: Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. In this edition of Radio Curious, we begin our 21st season with an interview with David Eister. He'll take over as Mendocino County District Attorney on January 3rd, 2011. In this conversation, recorded on December 27th, 2010 in the studios of Radio Curious, we begin with a discussion of the role of the defense attorney, with an idea to see how David Eister will integrate that into his new role as prosecutor. Welcome to Radio Curious. Thank you for having me, Barry. To begin, I'd like to visit with you about how you interpret the role of a criminal defense attorney.
1: Well, when I talk about criminal defense work, I I tend to characterize myself, if I'm in that role, as being a constitutional lawyer. When I say that, what I'm saying is is that the Constitution sets forth that every defendant is entitled to an effective defense, And it's the ethical duty of the defense attorney to provide that. You're representing the individual, which is an interesting thing because uh, there's some individuals who know how to better protect themselves with or without a lawyer and others that absolutely have no clue. In both situations, uh, the criminal defense lawyer is still a critical component of the criminal justice system. Part of providing
0: quality criminal defense rests on the information that the prosecutor
1: provides. What has been your ability to get full discovery? Depends on the county. I think you're probably referring to what my experience has been in uh, Mendocino County. Not specifically Mendocino County. I'm looking at your experience
0: as a defense attorney and what tools the defense attorney is entitled
1: to have and should cooperatively be given those tools. In general, um, my experience has been that discovery is not provided as timely as it should be. What would timely discovery be? Timely discovery would be that, uh, first of all, from my way of looking at it, once you determine that the uh, attorney is going to be the attorney of record, that's a good time then if there's going to be formal charges filed to give the discovery. So how do you
0: intend to change the uh, discovery process when you become
1: DA? I think that once someone tells us, certifies to us that they have uh, they have a client who has uh, retained them to represent them in a criminal matter, that, w- that will open up the pipeline for that uh, attorney to be provided the discovery.
0: Let's talk about uh, charging, filing the specific allegations of a crime against an arrested individual. During the campaign, you said that you would be doing the charging. At least initially, in past campaigns, there's been discussion about overcharging as a way of setting up plea bargains. What can we expect?
1: You call it overcharging. I call it leveraging a defendant. Is there a difference? No, it's the same thing. It's just that leveraging is is basically a more accurate description of what is happening. It is a uh, an attempt to uh, charge the kitchen sink and all the mud that's been thrown on the wall, and then you just figure it out later and you have some throwaway charges. You actually get down to what the case is really worth.
0: Let's go back to the campaign a bit. You talked about, and you as a a former deputy DA, and I as a former deputy DA, know that the job of the prosecutor is to assure justice, how do you justify, if you will, leveraging a defendant or overcharging a defendant as a way of assuring justice? You're putting in more. You, you talk about throwaway
1: charges. I, I don't. I don't justify that. I, I've been an advocate in what they call truth in charging. Truth in charging is, is that you you charge what the case is about. You just don't throw in the the miscellaneous things just for giveaways. Why is this done? Prosecuting uh, inexper- in that manner. Inexperience. It, it's folks. Uh, being asked to do things in which they have not had adequate training, they don 't quite understand the the concept as as you've stated is is that your job is to seek justice it's it 's when you start charging uh you know like I say the kitchen sink, you throw things in that that simply don't need to be there you, you just have to call the case what it is, and if the district attorney is the gatekeeper, probably one of the most important functions that the district attorney serves. And that is to decide who gets charged, with what, and at what level. The reason I uh, decided I was going to do the charging for the first six months, the 12 months, was because, one, I want to uh, restore some consistency to the charging. I want to deal, do away with what you call overcharging, what I call leveraging. I want to send a message to the law enforcement or, uh, and or the attorneys to show them what I'm interested in and I want to be able to speak to the community through my charging as to how this is all going down. So there's, there's multiple messages in one act there that I expect to uh, uh, take care of. The
0: underlying message is to do justice. Yes. I want to get into that in just a moment. but. Uh, if you've just tuned in, we're visiting with David Eister. He was elected in November to become the next district attorney of Mendocino County. He'll take office on January 3, 2011. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Dave, the issue is doing justice. Let's talk for a minute about the way justice is done here in Mendocino County. We have skilled prosecutors, skilled defense attorneys who try and present the evidence in the most appealing or, if you will, clever way in order to obtain either a defense verdict or a prosecution verdict. Do you think that the system of justice or the justice system that we
1: have now can be improved, and if so, how? The system of criminal justice uh, prosecution defense requires that all components of the system, one, uh, do their best, uh, are prepared, and understand their role in the system. If everybody does that, so for example, um, the pursuit of justice and public safety, which is the most important aspect of criminal prosecution is public safety, requires that the prosecution, who always has a head start, provide the information necessary to the defense so that they can prepare their defense, and then you basically go to the merits of the case in front of the judge. And eventually, if, if you can't resolve the case to uh, everyone's likings, which is, can be often the case, you go take that to the jury.
0: One of the problems that you uh, raise in my mind is do your best. Uh, there's an assumption there that uh, the people who are going to do their best have a lot of experience and understand that, Uh, which isn't necessarily the case. And I want to move towards economics now because of the large number of people who are represented by the public defender. Those are criminal defendants who cannot afford their own attorney. Many entry-level criminal lawyers on the prosecution side as well as the defense side have little to no experience. They're doing
1: their best, but what do we get? Coming out of law school, that's, you know, folks that want to be trial attorneys tend to either sign on with the public defenders or the district attorney's office because that's the place it's where go- you get the experience you're, you're going to get volume that's and you're right. going to be in court and you're going to be able to do case after case after case but our focus here is on doing justice not case after case i i understand that but that the the practicalities of of the system is you're going to do case after case you, you get on those calendar calls where you have uh, 50 to 100 cases, and you have to know all those cases and know what you want to do.
0: That trains the attorney, but I'm looking at it from the perspective of, one, the victim, and two, the defendant, so that justice is done uh, in their eyes, and
1: then one step back, the eyes of our community well the the defendant has his attorney, and it's the, all of this requires what I consider to be effective uh, communication, um, which i don't I'm not sure right now on all levels there is effective communication by that
0: you mean between the prosecutor's office and the defense attorney
1: everywhere in the circle you just described between the prosecutor's office and the victim, between the prosecutor's office and the uh, law enforcement uh, officers who are involved the defense attorneys and their clients, and then the prosecutor and defense attorneys. I don't think currently that there is as effective a communication network as there should be. Well, when we visit in a few
0: months or so, we'll talk about that. But right now, I'd like to move on to the non-criminal aspects of the district attorney's office, and that is unfair business practices. Do you plan to work in
1: that area? I, I do plan to work in that area that's a it's an area that I think um, provides protection to our community and also to individuals. The district attorney's office I think needs to have folks that have the ability to move into uh, the other arena, the civil arena if necessary, criminal or civil, and be effective in both. What are your intentions? What can we look forward to? I believe currently we have uh some fairly young attorneys assigned to uh, this task. It it may be something that needs to move up the ladder a little bit to a uh, mid to upper level attorney, someone that has more experience. And hopefully, by the time you uh, get to the Mid level or upper level uh, prosecutor, they've developed some judgment. They know which cases to go after. They know how to resolve them. And that applies to unfair business practices. It applies to asset forfeitures. It applies to uh, the criminal caseload. I have to get in and evaluate the current caseload of the attorneys, and I'm going to have to adjust it. Uh, It won't be on day one. Probably within the first six months, we have to uh, make some adjustments so we got the best folks doing the best work. Dave, let's talk about the difference between
0: the use of the grand jury indictment and filing of a complaint. The filing of a complaint in a felony case follows with a um, preliminary hearing to show that there's enough evidence to move forward. The grand jury indictment does not have that. It goes straight to a felony jury trial. It hasn't been used
1: very much in this county. Um, do you intend to use it? Well, it it depends on the case. If with the right circumstance, the answer is yes. But understand the the grand jury system is is interesting because it requires the prosecutor not only to put on the uh, inculpatory evidence, the evidence that shows you're guilty, but also to present to the grand jury the exculpatory evidence, meaning the evidence showing that the person is not guilty of the offense, so that the grand jury can make a decision on that.
0: Well, that's why I'm asking the question is following up to doing justice.
1: That's right. But see, many times the, the, the problem you get into, and you know, in, as a defense attorney, um, I've attacked uh, grand jury indictments successfully under the uh, what we call 995, it's an attack on the indictment for insufficient evidence on the grounds that the grand jury uh, was not told things that they should have been told. It's a very effective tool for speeding up the criminal process if it's the right case um, where you believe you have all the information. Yeah, A good example of it uh, in Contra Costa County, there was the nanny case where the 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 woman was uh, a nanny. She got uh, under the influence, and she ran over two children and killed them. Um, the defense attorney kind of stalled that case for a while, and while they were stalling it, the district attorney quietly was behind the scenes going to the grand jury, got an indictment for uh, second-degree murder, and all of a sudden – without a you know there was no preliminary hearing the indictment came out it superseded the complaint and they're on their way to a to a uh, a jury trial in short order um so that's an effective way of speeding things up What about
0: examples in Mendocino County what would you anticipate
1: well you know in a similar case like that that may be a good one that the cases that are more difficult are would be like the marijuana cases with the uh, uh, recommendations because now you run into the issue of um uh calling in the the doctor uh with is is to the grand jury to the grand jury and then the doctor has the uh you know the patient uh, uh doctor privilege can you force that uh to be waived there's there's all sorts of uh legalities that come to play where that probably is not a very effective way of handling those sort of cases on your tradi- what I'll call traditional crime, the the murders or the robberies or the burglaries, it, it might be more effective.
0: Let's talk briefly about uh, search warrants. The protocol of the Bureau of Narcotic Enforcement for the uh, State of California Department of Justice says that in the county task forces that a search warrant should be brought to the district attorney's office for review prior to the time that's presented to a
1: judge. Uh, Do you expect to be involved in that, your office? Well, in the past I was. Um, I do know now that uh, there are search warrants going through the system that are not taken to the DA's office um, for whatever reason. Um, I think it's a, a better practice for the uh, district attorney, um, either uh, either the district attorney, assistant district attorney, uh, one of the uh, more senior attorneys to review those things for uh, completeness and legality. So I, I would hope that that protocol will be followed. I need to find out. Currently, you're probably more up to speed on this than I am uh, because of uh, your research. But it's something I'm aware of and I need to uh, uh, look into, especially when I get access to the files in the DA's office so I can review those and see exactly what is happening.
0: Do you have any uh, experience or opinions about the consistency with which uh, police officers tell the truth, even if it may be contrary to the goals of the prosecution?
1: I I don't know if I fully understand the question. Police officers are expected to testify under oath, as all witnesses are. And under oath, presumes that the truth is being told. Well, it doesn't presume it. It's it's a requirement that truth be told. And if it isn't, then by being under oath, anybody who testifies or presents documents under penalty of perjury is doing so at the risk of a uh, penal code section 118 prosecution. That's the perjury prosecution. That's the perjury prosecution. Now in this county, generally speaking, the only time that has been used is in the context of say uh, welfare, uh, Medicare, other similar um, situations where people are filling out forms under penalty of perjury for example, saying they don't have income, and then it turns out that they do. Um, I don't recall a prosecution in this county, and I don't recall them in many other counties either, if if any, where there's been prosecution for perjury based on testimony, say, in a family law matter, in a criminal law matter, in a civil matter. If evidence is presented to you where the presenter
0: believes that the police officer did not tell the truth and... Uh, told the story in a different way, knowingly. Would you investigate that with a focus towards prosecution?
1: We'll certainly investigate it, and we'll apply the criteria that's normally applied in any PC-118 case. As you know, there's uniform uh, charging standards. The District Attorney's Association puts out a big binder, and I'm sure that you had access to when you're in the DA's office. But you look at all the criteria that normally be applied, you investigate it, and if there's admissible evidence that fits the criteria for it, then yes, I would proceed.
0: Well, Dave Eister, I want to thank you for being with us on Radio Curious. And now I'd like to ask some questions about you. Okay. As opposed to the thoughts of the job you're going to take. You mentioned in the campaign that although it was a nonpartisan position, you're a registered Republican true. Can you explain uh, the difference as you see it between Republicans and Democrats?
1: Well, I'm a registered Republican because of one concept, as I believe in limited government. And it goes back to my teachings of my father, my mother. In adopting that sort of philosophy, I don't adopt all the uh, planks of the Republican platform. Um, I do vote for the best athlete, I'll say. I vote uh, Democrat many times. I voted Libertarian. I've also voted uh, Peace and Freedom at times. But it's one of those things from from being a Republican. I I do believe that uh, the more limited the government, the better off we are um, as far as being able to take care of ourselves and having – a better go of things.
0: Staying here in Mendocino County and perhaps reaching statewide, what aspects of government would you contemplate limiting?
1: Well, I, I think right now we're we're seeing the government being limited uh, financially in Mendocino County. We're seeing uh, cutbacks happening left and right. My belief is uh, there, there's certain priorities that need to be given, especially the local government, and those priorities are fire. The local government should be providing uh, that fire and health protection. Uh, it needs the uh, public safety um, is a a function of uh, of uh, local government. So that means sheriff, DA, and the likes. And also, I think uh, and public defender. Well, public defender is part of the criminal justice system. So yeah, that when when I talk public safety, they're not seen necessarily as a direct public safety individual their kind of ancillary service that comes along with it, important, I mean, constitutionally protected. But I'm concerned, as I think everyone else is, about the continuing drop-down of our uh, numbers of sheriffs.
0: You're basically telling me areas where you think uh, it should not be cut. My question
1: was, yeah, well, where, what are the areas where it should be cut? Well, when you've set your priorities, you know, and the, the third one that I would talk about is, uh, is the infrastructure, the roads um, and the likes. Um, once in my opinion, those are the the top three things, and then the uh, after that it 's up to the supervisors if if they would set those priorities it 's up to the supervisors to start looking at what is uh, what services they have that are redundant to say for example, state functions or things that, as the money dwindles, needs to be cut if you 've set those priorities. Again, it's not my job as uh, the district attorney to set those priorities. It's up to the uh, legislative branch, and uh, I can just tell you that uh, you know, I'm expressing my personal opinion as to the top, top three things that uh, local government should provide.
0: Okay, well, let's move along, and I want to ask about uh, your background. And is there or was there an event, a eureka moment or an aha moment in your life that um, changed your view of the world or gave you a philosophy that you live by?
1: Well, the... You know, that aha moment, probably uh, it it was a a start of a uh, series of things, but probably is when I was uh, terminated from the DA's office, and that would have been uh, on Election Day in uh, March of uh, 1996. And at that point, I had to figure out how I was going to take care of my family, where I was going to go. After a short stint in Lake County, I went over and went to work for a... um, a law firm in uh Sacramento Burger and Plavin and that was one of the greatest things that ever happened to me in my life. I was uh in a very high level operating law firm. Uh, I was working for Trina Berger, who is probably the most brilliant attorney I've ever uh, seen. Absolutely brilliant. She's now a judge over in Sacramento. Her husband Frank was also a just unbelievable attorney. And so I, I was seeing things, working on cases that had, uh, you know, national impact. I was involved in the uh, briefing of state government agencies, the governor's office, general services, director of finance, things like that that I would never have uh, experienced. So it opened my eyes up both professionally and personally. And it, uh, it it changed how I practice law. It changes how I deal with people. I note that when I was uh fired by uh Susan Massini that the, the folks that uh were most concerned and expressed their um condolences to me were were not the prosecutors I had been working with, but it was the law enforcement agencies and the public defenders. And so that really it was an interesting thing to me that that, that dynamic. And so it, it it changed that uh, you know, us against them sort of philosophy to more of a, uh, you know, these folks are um, good people trying to do a a tough job, and I'm going to support them whenever I can if they're doing what's right. And what
0: would you like to do with the remainder of your one special life?
1: Well, my... You're embarking on a new project uh, next week. Yeah. I I would like to be successful in the first uh, four years of that uh, next uh, chapter in my life. I want to uh, hopefully develop a legacy uh, that I'm a, uh, a strong prosecutor but a compassionate one. I want to uh, continue to be active in the community. I want people to respect me, my staff, and the Office of District Attorney. Perhaps my goal is to do unto others as I would want them to do unto me.
0: And finally, Dave Eister, is there a book that you would recommend?
1: Well, I, I don't read books these days. I listen to them. I load them to my GPS as I'm on the road, and I just finished the uh, autobiography of Eric Clapton, which was uh, a, a interesting book. The one that I'm uh, doing right now is the new uh, autobiography of Mark Twain. So far as I'm getting into this book, I, I think this is just uh, really something people should be looking into. It's it's a book that he uh, wanted not to be opened or made available until 100 years after his death. And here we are. And here we are. And so I, I think it's it gives us a, a look back in time of 100 years ago. And what's amazing, as I've been listening it so far, is that some of the things that he said 100 years ago seem to translate very well to current state of affairs. So I, I would suggest that folks uh, take a look at the uh, new autobiography of Mark Twain that's out there, Samuel Clements, and uh, put it on your read list for 2011. Dave Eister, thank you
0: for being with us on Radio Curious. Thank you for having me, Barry. David Eister takes over as Mendocino County District Attorney on January 3rd, 2011. The book that he recommends is The Autobiography of Mark Twain. All editions of Radio Curious are free for anyone, anywhere, to listen, download, and enjoy. There are about 400 archive editions on our website, www.radiocurious.org. You may subscribe to our podcast at our website. Our email is curious at radiocurious.org. Snail mail is Post Office Box 7, Ukiah, UKIAH, California, 95482. And the phone is 707-462-6541. You've been listening to Radio Curious. Christina Anastad is the associate producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel.